This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, you lovely lot. I'm running a masterclass unraveling coercive control on December the 5th and 6th. So many of you have asked me questions about coercive control, so this is the place where you can learn much more detail about the offence itself, risk assessment and risk management, the effective police investigation, and so much more. Now, it's a virtual masterclass, so anyone can join wherever you are in the world. Together, we'll deconstruct many cases, including Gabby Petito, Alice Ruggles, Sally Challen, and the Menendez murders. You'll also be able to learn about best practice regarding what an effective police investigation looks like, as I mentioned, risk assessment and risk management, as well as the practical points to prove the coercive control offence and law reform in different countries, including the UK, Australia and America. Together, we can prevent murders in slow motion. For more information and to book a place, email laurarichardspa at gmail.com. See you in the classroom, you lovely lot. New overseas witnesses have given explosive evidence at the resumed inquest into Gold Coast mother Marion Barter's disappearance. The women revealed how convicted fraudster Rick Bloom tricked them in a romance con bearing striking similarities to Ms Barter's love affair. As a widow looking for companionship, Ghislaine Danlois met Rick Bloom 17 years ago. She knew him as Frederick de Hedeveri. Today, beaming into a Lismore courtroom via video link from Brussels, the 92-year-old recalled how his handwritten letter blossomed into a romance. He was a bank manager, a coin collector. He was interesting. She told the inquest he proposed, asked her to sell her house and move to Australia, convincing her to move money into accounts for her kids. He took advantage of the love I have for my children to steal my money. 72,000 euros gone. He's not very well, um, but he's prepared to give the evidence. Ghislaine Danois, one of the new overseas witnesses, uncovered after the Seven News podcast The Lady Vanishes, went global. The investigation is probing the 1997 disappearance of Gold Coast teacher Marion Barter, who travelled abroad with a serial philanderer. The 83-year-old is now in respite care in Bangalore. In an extraordinary win for Marion Barter's daughter Sally Layden, the coroner today rejected a request for Rick Bloom to give evidence remotely. He'll now have to turn up to court here to face extensive questioning in person. Was he trying to avoid media scrutiny by not turning up? Of course not. Of course not. 
There's no hope Marion Barter is alive. How and when she died are questions her family want answered. In Lismore, Jacqueline Robson, 7 News. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, this week I'm rejoined by Joni, and we have so much more to discuss. Now, where we left off last week, we were talking about Janet Oldenburg and her relationship with Mr. Rick Bloom. So without further ado, let's dive back in where we left off. Let's do some of the top lines with Janet Oldenburg. Janet was married to a man who was a coin collector, a very keen coin collector too. I guess that was how the connection came about between the two of them. Rick Bloom would visit a bookstore in Ballina where he was living and he actually had an office on a second floor about a block away from that bookstore. What we assume occurred is that Rick Bloom somehow heard of a pending divorce of Janet Oldenburg to her husband and we think perhaps that was through the owner of the bookstore. So Janet gets a call in the June just saying that I don't like what they're doing to you. Let's meet up for a coffee. We can talk about your pending divorce and settlement. I'm here to support you, etc. Doesn't hear from him for a good two or three months, which was interesting. And in that time, a safety deposit box is opened at the local bank. So then he goes and arranges to meet with Janet down at Evans Head in a local cafe. And I guess from there, the relationship bloomed. So initially it was, let's go into a business partnership together. Then Mr Blum admitted that he had feelings for Miss Oldenburg and he'd had feelings for many years for her. So then it turned into a relationship of sorts. And then it was suggested that they could do business and a relationship together at the same time, and that also involved an overseas trip. So interestingly enough, within a lot of these cases, it involves overseas travel. And to me, that is a big red flag. I mean, what better way to take a woman out of her comfort zone, out of her routines, out of everything that she knows, out of contact with others, because it wasn't that easy back then to just phone a friend or text someone or have your snap maps on or be monitored and managed in that way by friends and family. So this travel overseas for her, I think, was rather interesting, considering that the actual trip they went on in the end, it was actually quite boring. (laughs) She said she found it quite boring, quite mundane, very old hotels, driving in taxi cabs in Bali around the slum areas of Bali, not really being a tourist at all, taking a ferry from Amsterdam over to the UK, driving around the UK in a hire car, him disappearing constantly to make phone calls in phone booths, saying that he was unwell and sending her out on little bus trips from the airport. Yeah, I think that probably Janet was sort of at a stage in life where it was kind of exciting, it was something new and different. Janet also said that she was feeling really devastated and really sad about her divorce from her husband because that also involved 
the collapsing of a business too. They had a farm and, again, very close to Ballina. So their actual property was quite close to Ballina. And I find this case quite interesting because there was known connections and links to her. It wasn't a newspaper article. It wasn't someone that he plucked out from somewhere in another state. It was literally there was a link between him and her in the coin dealing circles. So again, risky. Yes. But if you if you haven't been caught, you don't fear the consequence. And the more you get away with things, the more empowered and enabled you feel. For me, it just makes sense because there's been no real consequence at any point. No, there hasn't. And that's part of the problem, isn't it, Joni? I mean, it's part of this whole case file that someone gets away with things. Well, they just carry on doing what they've done and they will escalate at times. Then they might think, well, it's a bit too risky. I've done a bit too many things. I need to keep a low profile. And then they can start up again. But I think it really does talk to the fact, you know, that women can be targeted in this way and they report to the authorities and nothing happens. Absolutely nothing. Before we go any further, I want you to hear more about how Mr Rick Bloom contacted Janet and the nature of the relationship. Take a listen to Janet explaining how she met Mr Rick Bloom, although she knew him as Rick West, and pay close attention to his promises and his one-way demands, as well as her trust in him and their travels, as well as what happened in the UK and when she returned to Australia. Well, pay attention to all of it. This is the evidence that Janet gave at the inquest, and it's detailed in the Lady Vanishes podcast. Again, this is not Janet's real voice, as proceedings were not allowed to be recorded. Listen to this. In May 1998, her marriage broke down. Michael Oldenburg left, leaving his wife shattered. He'd been the primary breadwinner, responsible for most of the major household expenses and decisions. She didn't have a job and had to rely on social security, so money was tight. More than a year after the separation, in June 1999, Ms Oldenburg received a phone call out of the blue from Rick West. Now, she had not been to a coin auction since her husband left and had only seen Rick in passing on the odd occasion at the shops. She was in the midst of an unpleasant property settlement and was a bit suspicious. He said, you're a very nice person and I don't like what's being done to you. I said, has this anything to do with Mike? He said, yes, it's about your settlement. I said, what about this? Mr West told her he'd like to catch up to discuss the matter over a coffee, but said he'd be away in Sydney for a few weeks, so would call after that. But it was four months before she heard from him again, in October 1999, by which time Rick West had a business proposal for her. The court heard Ms Oldenburg told him she had no money to put into a business, but he said he was looking for a business partner and they should meet up. At the time, Miss Oldenburg was single. Her two sons, then aged in their 20s, were not living nearby. She saw it as an opportunity to secure some work. Looking after his emails, having his computer at my place, taking orders from customers. They agreed to meet the following day at a cafe at the coastal town Evans Head, a 10-minute drive from Woodburn. 
At that stage, she had no idea where Mr West lived, although he later told her he stayed with friends at East Ballina. But he never gave her his phone number. At the meeting, he ran through his business proposal. He was going to teach me how to use the computer because I knew nothing about it. I'd have a computer and fax machine at my place. He wanted me to look at his emails, take orders for coins and post them off. Also go down to Sydney and do some bidding for him at coin auctions. He wanted to help me out because of my predicament, give me some work, and I knew there was money in coins. However, the court heard that the business never actually eventuated and Rick West never left a computer or fax machine at Ms Oldenburg's home. He did, though, invite her to London for a big coin auction, telling her that he'd pay for all expenses and he'd enjoy her company. A trip to London, I thought, wow. We both chatted and found we were reasonably compatible in that we both didn't smoke or drink. The court heard Ms Oldenburg was starting to have feelings for Mr West. She was 51 years old, lonely and concerned about her financial position. Very vulnerable at the time, yes. I'd had a husband that took care of everything and then suddenly he left. I did feel very emotional and was trying to get over it. It was difficult. Shortly before a meeting with Mr West, Ms Oldenburg's property settlement was finalised, although she never mentioned it to him. On October 15th, 1999, she was granted sole ownership of the family home at Woodburn and a Nissan patrol vehicle. Three days later, Mr West asked Ms Oldenburg to start life afresh with him in the French Riviera, saying he'd had feelings for her for three years. I felt uplifted to start a new life, a new beginning. That was pretty much where the relationship began. We talked about a trip a couple of times and other locations like Algeria and Spain. Because the weather would be nice and warm and I could have servants to lock up to my house so I wouldn't have to do anything. Mr Castleton SC told Ms Oldenburg that the man, formerly known as Rick West, has since told police investigators that he had no plan to settle in Europe with her. I can't believe he said that because it's true. He did say that. He was telling me all these things. The court heard the pair started a sexual relationship, but at no time did Ms Oldenburg know he was married with children. He told me he was single. She did, however, see documents which had the name Richard Lloyd Westbury on them. He had a senior's card and driver's licence and also said he'd changed his name by Depole to Rich Richard. People change their name by Depole all the time. Didn't pay any attention to it. There was his passport. That was all done in the name Rich Richard. The driving licence was in the name of our Richard. And he had a photo on it. So instead of Rick West, Ms Oldenburg then began referring to him as Rich Richard. He told me that he was worth about $12 million through his coin dealings and that he also owned 20,000 acres in Nimboida with red cedar growing on it. I got together with him for a relationship, not the money, so I just brushed it off. I didn't really pay any heed to that. I didn't have any reason not to believe him. I put my trust in him fully until the end of the relationship. Before their trip overseas, the pair arranged to have new passports. Ms Oldenburg said Rich Richard wanted to change her then dark brown hair to blonde for the passport photo, but the hairdresser said she was unable to do such a radical change. The court heard they discussed attending a coin auction in London and spoke of visiting Bali and Amsterdam. 
Mr Castledon asked Miss Oldenburg whether Mr Richard raised the notion of becoming power of attorney in each other's affairs. Yes, he brought the subject up. He said if anything happens to him, I would be taken care of, and so would the boys. Did you know we could authorise a person to sign documents on your behalf? No, I didn't realise, no. Did you obtain legal advice about this proposal? No. Was the power of attorney witnessed by a Justice of the Peace at the Lismore Courthouse? Yes. Did Rich Richard provide you with a power of attorney over his affairs at this time? No, I think we both signed the document. He took care of that and put it in his bag when we went overseas. That's the last I saw of it. Before the overseas trip, Mr Richard brought black tubing into the house and asked Miss Oldenburg to put her valuables in it so they could be buried in case the house was robbed while they were away. The court heard the pair went through Miss Oldenburg's jewellery and put into the tubing her wedding ring, engagement ring, a gold ingot, a jade necklace, a couple of gold bracelets, one with opals, a silver necklace and her grandmother's wedding ring. He went out to bury the item. It had my jewellery in it. He did come back into the house and I didn't see it, so I presumed he buried it, like he said. I didn't see him bury it. They took off for their trip on December 2, 1999, taking with them a large number of official documents, including the title deeds to Miss Oldenburg's Woodburn House, her birth certificate, her Australian citizenship, the power of attorney document and her marriage certificate. At the suggestion of Rich Richard, they also took the keys to the Woodburn house and $1,000. Did he explain why? It was we were going to settle in Europe somewhere. He wanted to make sure. The court heard Rich Richard pay for the flights and accommodation and also told Ms Oldenburg he was taking $10,000 in cash and travellers' checks. She said she wasn't even sure of their itinerary when they took off, but they'd always planned to return to Australia and would relocate to Europe sometime later. Her friend and sons were informed of the trip overseas, but Ms Oldenburg wasn't sure if she'd mentioned her relocation plans. Mr Castledon's line of questions then focused on the trip overseas. The pair left on December 2nd, 1999, and Ms Oldenburg said she fully expected to be home for Christmas. The first stop was Bali, before they flew to Amsterdam, where he'd arranged for a ferry to go to England. Do you know why you didn't fly? No, he knew the reasons. Ms Oldenburg said they didn't do touristy things in either Bali or Amsterdam. We did go by train, just a few stations and then travel back. Anything else? No, it was just mainly in the hotel. He did get me to walk around the airport. There was a bus from the Ibis Hotel. He wasn't feeling too well. Did you discuss with Rich Richard things you'd like to do? I trusted him. He knew everything. The court was told Mr Richard arranged to leave some of their luggage in storage at Amsterdam Airport. What was in your suitcase? Summer skirts, a light cardigan and a pair of plastic sandals. All the winter stuff was in a bag he provided to go to England and we'd pick them up on the way back, he said. Was your suitcase locked? Oh yeah, it had three locks on it. How long did you believe you'd be leaving your luggage at Amsterdam? When he finally did some business in England, we'd go back to Amsterdam and collect the cases. Rich Richard left a suitcase at the airport in Amsterdam. Do you know what was in it? I have no idea. I don't know. Why did you decide to leave them at the airport in Amsterdam and not travel with them like you did to Bali? Because, he said, it saves lugging cases all over the place. We can just travel freely. Was there anything of value in your suitcase? No. 
Despite the plan to go to a London coin auction, Ms Oldenburg never ended up going to London at all. Nor did she go to France, even though that's where they discussed they would start their new life. The court heard when they got to England, Ms Oldenburg and Rich Richard hired a car and drove to Sussex to look at rental properties. Now, just to draw a parallel with Marion's story, Marion sent postcards home to family and friends from Sussex in the south of England, telling them she'd hired a car and visited places such as Tombridge and Tunbridge Wells. Back to Ms Oldenburg's evidence. Where did you go? I don't recall any names of any towns or anything. Any sightseeing? We didn't do any sightseeing, only that he was looking for a place to rent. And we looked through a window at a little house for rent, but then decided not to do so. That was the end of that. Did the plan change to relocate to England? I can't answer that one. What was in his mind at the time? On December the 11th, 1999, when the pair was in Dover, Rich Richard suddenly told Ms Oldenburg she should go to spend time with her cousin in Manchester, even though, prior to leaving Australia, she had not made any plans to spend time with family. Did this come to you like a bolt out of the blue? Yes, it did. He wanted to go over to France and do business. I wanted to see my cousin anyway. He suggested I stay there because he had business in France. He said he had to see a couple of people over there and he'd be in touch with me later. The court heard the pair separated. Ms Oldenburg went to stay with her cousin from the 11th to the 16th of December. She didn't have a contact number for him or know where he was staying. But he retained possession of all her important documents, including the title deeds to her Woodburn house. Did you have any suspicions about his intentions? No, no idea. He called her on December 13th. Did he say, I'm still in England, I'll get the night ferry, catch a train to Brussels and then to France, ring you on Wednesday night? Correct. Did you ask why he hadn't called previously if he was still in England? No. Three days later, on December 16th, Mr Richard contacted Ms Oldenburg again, telling her he'd been bashed and robbed by six guys armed with baseball bats at a train station and was in hospital with broken ribs at Lille in France, near the border of Belgium. He said his passport and all of her documents had been stolen, and so had her house keys. The court heard he had to contact the embassy for a travel document, then asked if Ms Oldenburg wanted to go back to Australia on December 29th or early January. Why could he not get you on a flight prior to 29th of December? Did you have any sense he did not want you to return to Australia quickly? Not me. My cousin did. He thought something was wrong and that's why he got me back on the plane quickly. And you were able to secure a flight back to Australia which enabled you to return to your Woodburn property quickly on Monday 20th of December 1999. I got back early in the morning. I arrived in Woodburn at 7 in the morning on the night coach. She collected a spare front door key she'd left with a friend and arranged for a locksmith to cut new keys for the house. The court heard Mr Richard had not told her when he was likely to be discharged from hospital in France or when he'd contact her to meet up with her again. Had you started to become suspicious? No, no, I didn't. You still trusted him fully? Yes. Then, on that same day, Monday the 20th of December 1999, at about 11am, Mr Richard turned up, unannounced at her Woodburn home. You confirmed that you had not seen him since nine days prior in Dover. What was his reaction? The expression on his face was sort of shocked. I thought he was just weary from walking up the driveway. It was a hot day. 
Did he have any injuries? No, when I asked him how his ribs were, he said he took the bandages off because it was uncomfortable. Did he show you the injuries? Not that day. I noticed he didn't have any bruises and was walking around okay, so I thought he was better. He didn't say how he'd managed to get from Lille in France to Australia in four days, despite apparently having no passport. And he only stayed for about half an hour. Were you surprised by that? No, not really. He comes and goes whenever he wants. I was busy with the locksmith at the time. Did he return your house keys? Yes, he did. The ones he said were stolen in Lille? Yes, the same. What was his explanation? He said the French police sent the keys and my title deeds by courier. He returned the title deeds at a later date. Yes, I put them in my filing cabinet at that time. But her other personal documents were never returned. The court heard that nothing more was said about relocating to Europe, though Ms Oldenburg still trusted Mr Richard and there were discussions about selling her house at Woodburn. She contacted a local real estate agent and found the title deeds missing when she went to get them from the filing cabinet. That's when I started to get suspicious, really suspicious about Rick or Rich. Why? Because he gave them to me a few days before or whatever, and I know I put them in the filing cabinet, and all of a sudden they're missing, and he's the only one who's been in the house. Did he have any keys to your premises? I did notice that on some doors there were little keys, about three, and I used to leave them sitting in the door, and there was one missing, and that was weird. Was anything else missing from your house at this time? I went to dig up the jewellery and it was gone. It wasn't there. The court heard the last time she spoke with Rich Richard was January 5th, 2000. Ms Oldenburg asked him about the jewellery and he said he'd sent it back. She received a package on January the 7th containing some of the jewellery, but not all of it. A silver necklace and her grandmother's rings were missing. She reported the matter to police. He has since told the police he returned the jewellery. Ms Oldenburg laughed in response. (laughs) He didn't. So her statement, I feel like I'm not being very succinct and timelined in her her account, but jumping ahead a little bit, like her statement was pages and pages long. She had dates. It was very extensive. She gave it in the January when she'd returned unexpectedly to him in the December, and it was pages and pages long, and it was not pursued. It was literally, it just sat there, and she had no idea what was actually happening with it. She lost jewellery, she lost her $1,000, and more importantly, she lost identity documents. So he was wanting her to dye her hair blonde, and she couldn't make that happen, but he took, and if you think about it, she had a suitcase with literally a pair of plastic sandals, a T-shirt and a shirt or a skirt of some sort, clothing, can't remember exactly what, three padlocks on that suitcase. Why? Why Why is that? Sitting next to his monogrammed suitcase of RLW, Richard Lloyd Westbury, or Richard Lloyd West. And at that stage, his name was Rich Richard. Right. So now we're getting into the whole, the man of many names, of all these different names that he would use with different women and sometimes it was multiple names but she she did believe him to be successful didn't she i mean in terms of him being able to manipulate her she genuinely did think that he was successful 
And he had spoken to her about taking ID documents with her and that they were going to start this new life in the south of France. But he also persuaded her to bury the valuable jewellery or anything valuable in the garden just in case burglars broke in and that it would be safe to be buried. And that, to me, again, just strikes me of his ability to manipulate and make something so ridiculous sound plausible that while you're away, you you want to be careful that you don't get things stolen. And then, of course, when she returns, having been abandoned, she realises that what she had put in the garden had gone. Yes. She also realised and saw him walking up the driveway with a baseball cap on, having parked his car or taken a bus to the end of a very long farm stay driveway, walking up there to meet her when she had just arrived home and we find out later that allegedly he had gone to her neighbour to check whether she was home or not before attending her home on that day. But if you actually wind back, the fact that he is calling her from allegedly Lille in France, giving her times and dates of flights that she could return home and he's projecting after Christmas time or into early January. So what was the intention there? If he's coming back before Christmas, hot-footed it back to Australia, what was his intention there? Not to mention the fact that he took her to the Lismore Courthouse and he got a power of attorney over her affairs, allegedly. He agreed he did that on the record. She agrees that that happened on the record, but there is no record of that power of attorney in the court whatsoever. There's no record of it. So the documents were lost? If they both said that that happened, it just strikes me that there's a problem with the documentation going missing. Well, yes, it's thought that they went to a justice of the peace only, so it was more of a document signing exercise and that they were never actually submitted to the court to be actually put into place. So what was the vehicle of that? So when Janet describes how when she went into Lismore Courthouse, where she actually went, it was the Justice of the Peace Office. So it wasn't to the counter to actually submit. So what was the purpose of that? There's so many questions. Well, to make her believe he did have power of attorney over her affairs. And I think the fact that she was very upset about the marriage breakdown and and her vulnerability as well obviously weighs in there. If she'd been married for X amount of years and, you know, felt that she was taken care of and maybe the legal side was dealt with by her husband and then she no longer has a a strong male in her life, perhaps that's where Mr. Rick Bloom came in. I'll take care of you. I'll look after your affairs and, you know, we're going to start our new life together in the south of France. You can see how it would be set up. And even if it were just to make her think that that was the situation, well, what was going to happen thereafter? As you said, travelling, not with a huge amount of clothes, but with documentation, trying to get her to dye her hair blonde, which we've seen in the case of Charlotte, the hair being dyed. That for me is is a question mark. I know it is for a lot of people, but I feel the ultimate thing to demonstrate your control over a woman is to get her to do something to her hair that is not 
what she would want to do. And I just think that demonstrates utter power and control over someone to get them to change their hair and, and make them look like somebody completely different. And if it's not the woman's suggestion, i.e. I want to be blonde and, and the partner supports that, but to bring it up yourself, for me, I just feel that that is the ultimate power and control move and coercive control move to demonstrate your power over someone. Yes, and look, I think probably it, it is to be noted too that within Janet's case, there was people surrounding her that were concerned. I had the privilege of speaking to a family member about this situation and, you know, what occurred at the time to try to understand it from another person's perspective. And they did say, yes, there was talk in the family about what is going on, what's happening with this guy, what's going to happen with mum's house. That was potentially where it was a little bit different to Marion's case in that because Marion was kept everything so far away from anybody, there wasn't that person or people there that were from a distance looking and wondering. So you had Janet's cousin in the UK and you also had other relatives from her ex-husband's side who actually assisted to put a caveat on the house so when Mr. Rick Bloom came back into Australia, there was a caveat existing on that house. So therefore, no matter what he got, ID documents, the house deeds, there was a caveat existing on that property. So when people scratched their heads like, why wasn't he ever successful in getting the money from the sale of people's homes? I think possibly in Janet's case, it was because there was something legal legal process is put into place to stop that from happening. And thank goodness, you know, and I don't know where that power of attorney piece fits in on that timeline, but others quite rightly intervening, thank goodness that happened. And like you said, Marion didn't have people that knew and hers was a very, we talked about it before, an accelerated timeline of a perfect storm in her life. And that's why I felt it was always a timeline case with Janet Oldenburg, thank goodness she had people asking those questions and putting things in place, but he was attempting to do those things. And I think that's very important. And the dyeing the hair blonde, I mean, I think she said from recall, her hair was so dark and it just, it wouldn't take. But that also just shows me that she was malleable. She was prepared to do it. And that's concerning. So how he chooses women, those who are malleable, those who are compliant, those who are I say it's vulnerable, but we're all vulnerable at different stages. You know, it's not clear cut. It can be you're looking for love. It can be someone, you know, your relationship's broken down or someone's died or you're looking for something completely different. For me, Mr. Rick Bloom has the ability to key in to each woman and work out what that weakness or vulnerability is and then exploit it to his advantage. And that's a pattern I see for him when understanding each woman that he's targeted, that there is something unique about them. And he does take his time to a degree with some of them, but then he, when he doesn't get what he wants, I mean, as he said to Janet, he said that because she talked too much that the relationship was going to end. I mean, it's a ridiculous reason. And then he disappeared. So the same pattern. Yes, but what I find intriguing, just to add to that, is that when Janet did return, so after being stranded, left stranded in the UK with no money, you have her cousin send her back 
you know, assist her to get back to Australia, etc. He still continued to visit and she still got the real estate agent around to have a look and to value her home, to see what it might be worth, etc. I just sort of wonder about his ability to manipulate to the point where even after that has occurred, you're still willing to go along and continue on the relationship. And I find that amazing, that ability to manipulate and to keep things going for as long as he chooses. Yeah, I mean, it's that never give up mentality. And if he sees that there is possibly a a chink in the armoury, he'll probably go again. Because I do believe that he has the ability to charm and you know, suck you in, that this isn't about gullible, naive women. And and I said this many times, but I'll keep saying it because it's always the woman, well, why does she bury her things in the garden? When you trust someone and when you believe in them and when you think they're acting in good faith, why not? You know, we have to remember that context and the time of him and his spider's web of entrapping and ensnaring, but acting like he's a good actor and a good influence and doing things for, you know, their better good, their greater good, their welfare and their well-being, that he is bringing something positive to their lives, you know, each woman in, in a different way. And I think that's very important, that emotional investment that you have in someone that people forget about when they're hearing cases like this. It's also to be mentioned with the jewellery, the bearing of the jewellery, he actually buried some of his coins as well, allegedly. So he actually showed up with a with a tube and he said that he had some coins in there. So he actually buried some of his items too. And I think that as a human being, you know, if someone's going to be willing to bury their things, then why would I be concerned about burying mine? Yeah. You're sort of in this together. That's the sentiment, isn't it? We're in this together, which gets said a lot, you know, and I'll look after you and I'll protect you. And of course, they go abroad and she's stranded, as we've heard with some of the other women too. She's stranded, having to make her way back. And he's already come back and dug up the garden. So he's keeping her busy with one thing when he's actually doing something else entirely. But she trusted him. And that's what Mr. Rick Bloom exploits, the trust which comes with building rapport, investing, charming, love bombing, grooming. He's taken time to do that. And it's afterwards that this happens. So that emotional investment and him, like he said to Monique, saying that he was a spy and then she sees all these different identities. And therefore for her, that corroborates the fact that he's a spy. And he says, I'm just doing my job. You know, he's chameleon-esque. He will be whatever each individual woman wants or needs him to be. And that's, for me, what makes him very, very dangerous. That ability to just snap out of one and move to another and to have no real emotional investment at all. And I think Monique also said he was laser-focused on the money, laser-focused on the money. He would do anything for the money. And that, again, is an interesting insight from her that that's what was motivating him. So when someone's non-compliant to them, because we have to think that each woman that we know about was compliant in a sense, even when he nicked off with their things and they would challenge him, he would then threaten them. So in a sense, he could 
pat them down and stop them from taking any further action. But what would happen if you had someone who was non-compliant? That's the question that I have when I think about Marion. Certainly when I asked Sally about her victimology, would she be confrontational? Would she be compliant? Would she just accept, having invested in him, that he was married with children? Would she just accept that? And Sally told me unreservedly, no, she wouldn't. She wouldn't have, in Sally's opinion. So again, just when we're thinking about behaviour, each situation is slightly different. But from what we know of when we listen to the women, each has really been compliant and malleable. Yes. And if you consider that with Marion too, if you actually consider what of her regular life she did give up at the start, her identity, her name, her family, her house, her furniture, her car, her profession, She's on the outgoing passenger cart as a housewife. She's coming back in as a housewife. She gave up a lot. Everything that mattered for love, question mark. You know, why would someone do that? That's always for me, you know, what is the gain? To give up everything and everyone that you love, to change your identity, what do you gain? And if you're doing it for someone, as what we're hearing from each woman, they're giving up those things for this promise of a new life of going overseas. That's salient across each woman. And whether it's romantic or not, it's still salient because it's an investment in a future together. That's what they think they're going to get. But that's not what they get, right? Yes, that's right. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. 
And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. So let's talk about Ghislaine Dubois. She did give evidence and she stayed up to the early hours giving evidence. I remember listening to her standing at the beach and just being absolutely wide-eyed about what she had to say. It was just so powerful that she felt so strongly that she was going to give evidence, but she believed that she was going to have a new life with Mr Rick Bloom, a new life in Australia, didn't she? I want you to hear some of Ghislaine Dubois' testimony for yourself. Now, this is from the Lady Vanishes podcast, and it's a voice actor, as the coroner's inquest wasn't allowed to be recorded. Take a listen to this. A familiar face pops up on the screen. It is 92-year-old Ghislaine Dubois-Denlois. Ghislaine is in Brussels and the interpreter is in Lismore. Both give their affirmation. It is 12.30am in Brussels. Given the late hour, it's no wonder she appears weary. At times, she trembles and her eyes water. This is hard for her. Coroner Teresa O'Sullivan thanks the witness for staying awake so late to give evidence. In reply, Jelaine says this. I know, but it is so important for me to bear witness. Through the interpreter, Miss Dubois-Danlois tells the court she met Frederick de Hedevry in 2006, although later learned that he went by several other names as well. She says he responded to an ad she had placed in a newspaper. I had asked for a handwritten letter, which he sent. And it was a very nice letter, with no spelling errors, and very interesting. Their first meeting was in a cafe in Brussels in June 2006. And the last time she saw him was three months later, in September. Their friendship had quickly blossomed into romance. Because she knew he was staying in student accommodation... Jelaine invited Frederick de Hedevry to stay at her home. He accepted immediately, and they shared a bed. But he had said to me beforehand that it was abnormally frigid. She says he told her he lived in Australia, where he was a bank manager, and was in Belgium to look for old coins, as he was a collector. The court is told he invited Miss Dubois Danois to get married at a resort in Bali and suggested they would later live in Australia. She agreed, so long as she could visit her children and they could come to visit her. I was fond of him and I wanted to live with him in Australia. But Frederick de Hedevry did not want Jelaine Dubois-Danlois to tell her children of their plans to marry. Simply, he was saying, because it's more fun. It would be more practical to tell them once we were married. 
But that is exactly what I would not accept. She insisted on telling her children, and they were very surprised and astonished. However, she said they didn't try to stop her because they loved her and wanted her to have freedom after their father's death. Mr. Wardanois tells the court when she started making preparations to move to Australia, Frederick de Hedevry chose items of value around her house and put them into two trunks. He said he would have them shipped to Australia so she'd have them when she arrived, but she has not seen those items again. He also asked her to undergo particular medical examinations, an ultrasound of the liver and a sleep examination before she travelled to Australia. And he requested she put her house up for sale. So he asked me to sell my house and then he asked me to give him the money so that he could open bank accounts in his bank for my children. And I had four children and that would be four separate bank accounts so that when they visited me, they could find their very own money in their own bank account. He took advantage of the love I had for my children to steal my money. The court hears she took money from her shares, investments and savings and gave it to Frederick de Hedevry, about €72,000 in cash, to set up the bank accounts. And... Every time she went to make a withdrawal from an account, he would always accompany her. But she decided not to hand over the proceeds from the sale of her house. No, because my son, who lives in France, told me that there was a house for sale near him and I was thinking of giving him money to buy the house. And Frederick understood at that point that he was not going to get the money. That's when he left. So my son and his partner had organised a meal and we had a date. But he never came. I got worried because he had on him, so he said, a large sum of money for purchasing coins. And I was frightened for him. She contacted the police and they told her not to worry because he'd been seen in Amsterdam and was in good health. She later spotted him one day on the streets of Brussels. We were walking on each side of the street and I think he saw me first and he dove into a chocolate store, probably to avoid me making a scene. The court heard that Frederick de Hedevry never gave Miss Dubois Danois the €72,000 back, although he did give her a warning a few days after he left. One day, he called me from Brussels in, in Belgium. And I, and I said to him, give me back what you took from me. And, and he said, I took nothing from you. But if I hear from you again, I think he meant he was worried that I might lodge a complaint. You will have to deal with me. I think he was hinting at some form of revenge. And the only reason he gave for ending the relationship? In some ways it's quite laughable, he said, because you're noisy when you drink. Eventually I understood that he never loved me and all he wanted was my money. 
When she realised she'd been duped, she made a complaint to Belgian police. And that's when she realised Frederick de Hedevry may have had other names. When I went to launch a complaint, the police asked me, does he have any other names? And of course, I knew nothing of that. And they said, we can't find much under his name. Sally Layden's lawyer, Bradley Smith, asked Miss Dubois Danois whether Frederick de Hedeveri wanted her to give back the letter he had sent her. She agrees, saying he told her he would frame it so they could put it above their bed in Australia. But she never saw the letter again. She is also quizzed about a statement Belgian police asked her to make in 2013. Ms Dubois Danois said it was because Frederick de Hedeveri had targeted another woman in Tournai, in Belgium. They gave me no name, but they said this poor lady had been abandoned without any money in Bali. And she was completely left without anything and very sad. She also told the court that Frederick de Hedeveri had told her he was involved in the Vietnam War as a volunteer and that he had an interest in poison and would speak about it often. In the end, what I was really worried about was his interest in poison because on two occasions I was afraid of him. She had placed an ad. Yes. I mean, it was her again who had placed an ad and unfortunately the, it was Mr Rick Bloom who responded but not in that name. I find this case very fascinating. I'll never forget standing on my own deck here down in Australia when I received a call from Tom Riddell from the Luxembourg Word who had filled me in and let me know that this had all occurred. And I'll never forget when he did say to me, oh, yes, and, you know, he was quite insistent on Ghislaine having a liver ultrasound and there was just dead silence on the phone. And I said, I just need to let you know, Tom, that Marion actually had a liver test prior to leaving. And we both, it was just dead silence. And then he said, and she actually packed up her belongings into some crates, into some tea chests. And I thought to myself, okay, we've got some real similarities here to Marion's case. And I find it quite interesting, the fact that he would actually take items out of those tea chests that weren't of a valuable nature and they were found in the house afterwards. And so it was just valuable things that were packed in those tea chests and also any evidence of him. So the original letter that he wrote to Ghislaine is as a response to that newspaper article. And he said, we'll pack it in here, allegedly, and we'll put that above our bed in Australia in memory of how we first met. To me, that whole scenario was so important to the current proceedings in this case because of those two similarities and also just because of what was reported at the dinner too and the kind of conversations that were had between Mr De Hedeveri and the family members about war stories, being in the Vietnam War, going through in explicit detail a whole lot of atrocious 
descriptions of women and about a particular woman that he happened to be next to in a very awful situation in the Vietnam War. And I just find that very interesting. And the fact that according to um, Ghislaine's daughter-in-law, he actually took a book, an old book on poisons and sort of coveted that for himself. Her son actually said, oh, you, you seem to have a real interest in that book and, you know, he just covered it away. And then he's burning documents in their fire, allegedly too. So what were those documents? Well, that's very interesting. Um, it's so unique in terms of a set of behaviours across two cases. The likelihood of them being unrelated is, I mean, flip it the other way. You know, the probability of them being similar facts and the same person involved increases significantly because it's so unique as a set of behaviours. You know, having a liver check, why would you just suddenly get a liver check? I think it's important for you to hear from Ghislaine's daughter-in-law, Alexandra Piriboom, in her own words. She became aware of the Lady Vanishes podcast and she emailed the Lady Vanishes team explaining that her mother-in-law, Ghislaine, had had a whirlwind relationship with a man that they knew to be called Frederick de Hedivery, also known as Rick Blum, in 2006. She also made a statement. Pay close attention to what happened regarding this liver check, as it was more than just a request. And also pay attention to her impression of Rick Bloom and how he interacted with Ghislaine and her family and what she said about his MO and the police response. The modus operandi that Frederick de Odovari, alias Rick Blum and other pseudonyms, used to defraud my mother-in-law was identical to the one used for Mayan barter. Meeting via an ad, the selling of a house, cash withdrawal, departure for Australia without saying goodbye to her kids. Fortunately, the story didn't go as far. My mother-in-law luckily is still alive. The swindler disappeared just before the scheduled departure to Australia. My mother-in-law, Ghislaine Dubois-Donlois, lodged a complaint to the Tevereren police in September 2006. A few years after, she was contacted by the Tournai police regarding another victim of Frederick de Adivari that barely got away and to whom the exact same thing happened. I would like to describe to you the memory I have of Frederick de Adivari, since this individual looked dangerous to me, right from the first time that I saw him. I had the occasion to meet Frederick on August 9th, 2006. The memory of that night makes my blood run cold. A few days before, my mother-in-law announced to her three children who were living in Belgium that she wished to gather the whole family to announce a very important news. We didn't know what it was all about. Her son, who was living in France, couldn't make the trip. For that reason, she organised a trip to France where we were all invited as well. On the scheduled day, I went to my mother-in-law's at Tevereen with my partner Gabrielle Dubois and our two-year-old son. The rest of the family was there as well. When I entered the house, I saw a man that I didn't know and greeted him in a hurry, thinking that he was a neighbour that came unexpectedly since we didn't get introduced. 
When the whole family arrived, my mother-in-law put us champagne flutes and announced, Here is Frederick. We love each other, we are getting married, and we are going to live in Australia. We were all shocked to hear such a brutal news. I remember that we could feel the emotion from my mother-in-law while Frederick remained as cold as ice, as if he wasn't involved in this news. Some family members were trying to lighten the mood by asking a few questions to the men. For this festive meal, Frederick had prepared a spaghetti bolognese dish with star anise. We sat down to eat. In front of everyone, he told different notable anecdotes of his life. He explained that he was first a gendarme in Belgium, then, following an accident, he left for Australia. His accident left its mark because he walked with a limp. We all noticed it. During mealtime, he kept on telling ghoulish and unhealthy stories. He said he took part in a Vietnamese war as an Australian Army volunteer. He told us a gruesome story about it. He was made a war prisoner and was put in a hole so narrow that he could only stand up. Next to him, in another hole, was a Vietnamese woman who was a prisoner like him. He gave us sordid details regarding the agony and death of that woman. I don't remember it. I felt very uneasy towards what he was explaining. I thought it was completely inappropriate to tell those kinds of details to people we are seeing for the first time. During the night, he also mentioned poisons. I remember it because that particular subject came back in discussions a few weeks after. He told us he was a numismatist, professional, which means he went around the world looking for different types of rare and ancient currencies. And this was what justifies his numerous travels. The night came to an end and we asked Frederick if we could see him before his departure for Australia. He said that it's unlikely because he was very busy. The next day, August the 10th, I was going on the holiday to France with my partner and my son. We had to see my mother-in-law again in Carcassonne a few days after so she could announce verbally the news of her departure to her son who lived in the southwest of France. During this family meeting, we talked more freely since Frederick Dardavari wasn't there. We learned that my mother-in-law was going to sell her house and all that was inside, as well as her car, prior to her departure for Australia. We also learned that he would have advised her to leave without telling her kids about it, but that she refused this condition. We learned that he travelled a lot in between Europe and Australia. My mother-in-law told us not to worry because she could come back often. I told her they would be welcome to stay in our guest room when they would come. She answered that it wasn't necessary. Usually, Frederick stayed at the Astoria Hotel when he came to Brussels. However, for the time being, he had rented a room in the student accommodation of ULB since he was staying in Belgium for a long period of time. I was quite taken aback by the contrast between a grand hotel and an uncomfortable student room. I found it weird. We all tried to learn how she met him, but she remained vague in her answer, saying she knew him for a very long time via mutual acquaintances. Later on, at the time she lodged a complaint against him, September 2006, we learned that she only met him a few weeks before she introduced him to us via a personal meeting ad that she published in a newspaper herself. When we came back from our holiday at the end of August, we helped my mother-in-law empty her house since she was very much decided upon putting it on sale and quickly leave for Australia. My partner and myself have packed books in boxes, 
We did this for several consecutive days. During that time, we saw Frederic de Adivari at least twice at my mother-in-law's. He was quite unemotional and distant. We saw him burn documents that were his in the chimney. He asked Gislaine to do all kinds of medical tests before leaving. While I was sorting out some books, I witnessed a troubling scene. My mother-in-law was on the phone with a doctor and explained that she wanted to do some medical examinations before leaving. Frederick was next to her and he was listening to everything she said carefully. Suddenly, he said, Ask for an ultrasound of the liver. My mother-in-law is very healthy. Everything seemed weird to me. She keeps talking to the doctor, disregarding the remarks of Frederick. Then he shouts insistently, Request an ultrasound of the liver. My mother-in-law mentioned it to a doctor then. Frederick de Adivari's behavior at that specific moment seemed abnormal to me. He became aggressive for no apparent reason. On another day, the second day we saw Frederick at my mother-in-law's while we were emptying the house, we learned that certain objects would directly be sent to Australia in a steel chest that he brought. My mother-in-law wanted to put in some books and photos that add significance to her, but he found pretenses to choose what would go in the chest himself. Essentially, he took all the high-value objects that were in the house, including a silver cutlery set. He told her in front of us that it was stupid to send books all the way to Australia and that it would cost her less to repurchase the books once there. He was in a hurry to have his chest expedited as soon as possible because it was his accountant who was supposed to receive it on hand and he wasn't going to be able to take the delivery if Frederick didn't send the package right now. When sorting out several books, my partner found a book about deadly poisons that leave no trace. Remembering that Frederick talked about poisons the first time we met, he asked him if the book was of any interest to him. He seized the book quite aggressively, and we were startled at his strong reaction. During this house decluttering days, my partner insisted Frederick and his mom come have dinner at her place before they leave. Frederick didn't want to because he had too many things to do, but my mother-in-law insisted and said she couldn't turn her son down. Frederick ended up agreeing and a day was secured for our get-together. On that day, my mother-in-law arrived at our place. I can't remember the exact date, but it's the day she lodged a complaint to the police at the beginning of September. We were waiting for Frederick, who was coming back from a trip to Amsterdam, where he went to a numismat fair. We waited for a long time. My mother-in-law was getting more and more worried. She tried to call him, but he didn't answer. She told us that she was worried about the fact that he had a large sum of cash money on him and was scared that he might have been assaulted. I accompanied her to the police station where they told her to go to the Tavurin police precinct since that's where domicile was. It was only a few days after that she admitted having been the victim of a swindler who disappeared with all of her savings. Since there were duplicate keys of our house at my mother-in-law's, I immediately changed the locks for fear that Frederick would break into her house. To help my mother-in-law, I tried to get information from the place where he stayed, the student accommodation at ULB. They confirmed that he did stay there, but they refused to give me more information. I also know that the chest was sent by FedEx. I tried to know what it was expediated, but they refused to give me that information. 
My mother-in-law learned that Frederick de Edivari did several years' jail time for various scams. A number of years after, she was contacted by the Tournai police following the complaint of another one of Frederick de Edivari's victims. Since then, we haven't had any more news on his account. And... You know, I also think with with Ghislaine, her describing that she placed the ad and he responded in perfect French, and that's what struck her. When I think about the MF Remacal, which the ad that was placed in uh, Le Courant Australian, the language that's used, it's to fish in a certain pool and to attract a certain sort of woman. That cannot be ignored either. You add in a third very similar fact, even though one is an ad that he put out and the other is one that Ghislaine did. But in terms of what the reply is and what he's looking for, the two match up. And that's what struck Ghislaine. So three clear things that are, for me, significant because they are so unusual. That strikes me immediately. Yes, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And especially if you do look at the account of Marion and, I mean, Mr Bloom said himself, I mean, Mr Bloom was the one that actually stated this in both his interviews and in court, that he had accepted T-Chess from Marion's home and that they were in his garage for only three weeks. They would be picked up and transported elsewhere to then be transported overseas. And the fact that they were picked up by her in a van with a pilot in his full uniform, including gold bars on his shoulders and his cap. And I just find that so improbable. So what is it about the packing up of belongings and the transporting in crates? Because again, Alexandra Periboom, who is Ghislaine's daughter-in-law, said that she offered to assist him to move Ghislaine's crates out of the house because they were to be shipped to Australia. And he said, no, no, don't worry, just give me a blanket and I'll arrange, you know, I'll arrange to pull it over the floor and I'll, I'll arrange the whole thing. And to me, you know, it's, as you've said, that's so unusual that would actually occur in both of these cases. And that's why I'm just so grateful and pleased that Ghislaine did actually come and fully testify and fully engage in the proceedings. We're so grateful to her for doing that. Yeah, she's an incredible woman. You know, I also, well, going back to the pilot, it's so fanciful that it just didn't happen. And I'm just going to say that out loud. A pilot is not going to be appearing wearing his full uniform and cap to be lugging boxes here, there and everywhere. Absolutely fanciful. But his ability to want to control things, that's really what it talks to me about with Mr. Rick Bloom. And his callous, I think what Ghislaine also said that, that struck me was that she talked about losing a two-year-old child in an accident and how distraught she was about it. And when she told 
Mr. Rick Bloom, he really just didn't care. He showed a callous disregard for what she was sharing with him, which was so distressing. And I think he then went back to talking about himself and she realised at that point that he didn't care. And it's in those moments that you realise whether someone's really invested in you or whether they're just trying to get what they want from you. She did talk about an engagement as well, which was disputed, but she did actually have copy of the engagement announcement, didn't she? That he refuted it and he was caught in that lie yet again. And there are so many lies, but this is a very important one where Ghislaine could prove these things. And I think Alison and Sandy ended up giving a, a statement about it. It might seem small to some people, but it is important in proving that he is an out-and-out liar. And when he talks about the women specifically, he is lying and it's been proven in court. It happened. It's not just someone allegedly saying it. It happened because she had a copy of the announcement. They were going to start this new life in Australia. That's what he said to her. Yes, yes. And the cafe where that was to be held was very close to the property that she'd purchased next door to her son's farm down in southern France. So it certainly all adds up. That is, of course, very much disputed by uh, Mr Rick Bloom. Well, it can be. He can say what he wants, but a fact is a fact. An opinion is very different from a fact. I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode. A fact is a fact, no matter how Mr Rick Bloom attempts to gaslight the women and the coroner. There's photographic evidence to corroborate Ghislaine's account that he proposed to her and that they were engaged. There are also corroborating witnesses, including Alexandra and the rest of Ghislaine's family. Remember, he was the one who answered the ad. He love-bombed Ghislaine and proposed, despite the fact that he was married to his wife Diane at the time. How utterly disrespectful to Ghislaine and also to Diane and his own children. His salient behaviour and these similar facts across cases must not be ignored. Next week, you'll hear more about Ghislaine, Andre Flum and Charlotte. Until next time, be curious, ask questions and always trust your instinct. my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.